for the Faith FM Breakfast Show with the Double L Team, Lyle and Lawson. Good morning, everybody. It is so good to have you join us here on 87.6, or 88, right across Australia, right across the Faith FM network, wherever you are, positively different radio in the morning. We've got a special shout out for all those listening on Lord Howe Island in Tas in mm. in New South Wales, I should say, on eighty seven six. I was going to say Tasmania would be nice if it was in Tasmania. Lord Howe Island, unfortunately, is just kind of, it's up here. Lord Howe Island's just kind of doing its own thing. Yeah, let's it, have a shout out for one. Let's go for Bruni Island in Tasmania. How about oh, that? there you go? Okay, island all the islands. Yes. Yep. I wonder if I can find another island. The islanders of Australia. Do we have an, Do we have one? Uh, let me just see here. South Australia. I'm not seeing any more islands, so let's go with Ararat, Victoria on 88.0. And shout out Hawaii as well, because it's a, it's a big island. And, and you can listen online. That's right. You using can. the Faith FM app or any other radio streaming app. That's right. Absolutely. I'm sure there are people who uh, have listened to Faith FM mm-hmm. in Hawaii, on Hawaii. Mm-hmm. You can say on Hawaii or in Hawaii, and both are correct. I just realized Because that. you're on an island. Well, you're on the island of Hawaii, mm-hmm. or you can be in the islands of Hawaii. Or in the state of Hawaii. Yes. Or in the town or the city of, you know, various places on the different islands of Honolulu or whatever it is. But you can't be on Honolulu, so... No. You don't. can be in Honolulu, <laughs> but you can be on Hawaii. What are you grateful for this morning, Lyle? I'm grateful for Hawaii. It's a go- gorgeous place. I lived there for a month. It was absolutely amazing. That That's the dream. You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM, positively different. But hey, we are going to have a our first question for the quiz today. Where in Egypt did Joseph's family live? 0491-064-669 is the number to call or text if you know the answer to that one. If you do, you'll go into the draw to win an amazing prize. We are giving you the single most valuable book. That has Indeed ever existed. There is in, no question about that. In fact, its title is The Word of God. There is literally, literally millions of people who have died for this book. Mm-hmm. But this is also a really nice expensive one too with great margins and uh, amazing... What's the edging? Well, it's called edging. Gold. Gold. Gilt. Gold. Well, it's kind of like a copper... Color, which is really well, pretty. Gilt, copper gilt. Copper gilt. There you go. It looks fantastic. Spelled G-I-L-T, not G-U-I-L-T. Okay. Fair enough. Yes. Also, it's vegan too. So, you know, you don't have to, your conscience to I'm be not gonna eat it. Well, neither am I. Oh, but it doesn't have leather. It doesn't have leather. I, I have no huge yeah, yeah, but, but, but anyway, but maybe there's someone who does. Maybe there's but, someone who does. But, uh, it's vegan. It's amazing. Zero four nine one zero six four six six nine. It's also the perfect Christmas gift. Literally, get your shopping done today. But by answering a question, that question was where in Egypt did Joseph's family live? Zero four nine one zero six four six six nine. As Lyle just said, answer the question. Get in the draw. You're in the draw. You can win the draw. Win this prize. Bam! Christmas present, either for yourself or for someone else. Sounds fantastic. Lawson, what's happening in the world of positively different oh, news? Positively different news. Well, i got some news stories here. Before I get into it, I just want to say we had a Christmas party yesterday, and Lyle, you missed out. Because, I did. Because you missed out in seeing me be the greatest person to ever touch a golf club in the history of the world. I didn't miss out. 
And uh, and everyone can affirm that. In fact, when I came into the studio this morning, Shell was saying about how amazing at golfing I am. <laughs> uh, I think she kicked your butt. <laughs> well, actually, I won a prize. Uh, I, I, <laughs> you, I was kind of... You, you scummed yourself a prize because there's a golf ball that ended up inside of the target and nobody else claimed it, so... And it was me! It Lawson was, claimed I was, it! I did it! I was, I'm actually bummed that I didn't play some rounds of mini-golf as well to, to prove my absolute dominance on the field. It's because uh, Shell would have kicked your butt. That's why but, you, you avoided it. Because but you didn't I... Know. Dude, I was doing some fat shots. I was, like, running up. I was doing some big run-ups and hitting the balls. It was epic. It was epic. No, we had a great time. It was awesome to spend time as a... Because uh, during that time as well, you know, it is uh, our whole office, which is completely dedicated and devoted to doing ministry, all got together and celebrated. We played golf. We had some fun. We had a meal together. And then we got together and we prayed and we shared about what we're thankful for for this year and what we're thankful for about different people. And it was just a really powerful time. And we just recently had Thanksgiving we did a very similar thing. Uh, but I think it really showed me the power of thankfulness and appreciation for people. And so after that experience yesterday, good news, guys. If you want to have a better, happier life, that's something you should practice is just being thankful and sharing that, their appreciation with others. Because that's, that's what I got into yesterday and it was great. Okay, positively different news this morning. I know I say this a lot. But Lyle, it's happening. Okay, trust me. Everything is happening. Trust me. It's it's going. It's going down. Okay, because a Dutch company Mm -hmm. has created a car. It's called the Lightyear Zero. All right, and this car has five giant solar panels on the roof. It's just been put into production. It's going to travel for one light year. And I I wish no. But what it is going to do is it's an EV that can be charged like through a plug or it has these solar panels on the roof and the solar panels give you up to around 80 kilometers a day of like charge. That's pretty decent. That is more than I would usually drive in a day. Um, yeah, it's true. And so it's true. with the battery so for, for daily commuting, so long as the sun is out, yeah. You're in good shape. That's right. And if you're if the sun isn't out, then you can plug it in and the full battery charge is around 300, uh, 300 to 350 kilometers. Okay, so if the sun's out, you can get 380 k's out of it. Yeah. How bulky is it? Do we have pictures of this thing? Is yeah, it just like it looks a like massive kind of bulky kind of It's a, a, a four-door, four like, sedan. Look at it. It looks it actually. Okay, that looks the pretty styling's decent. pretty good yeah, too. Yeah. Like I, uh-huh. I really because I've often thought you know maybe maybe I could put my four wheel drive onto electric power. You uh-huh. know, get rid of the diesel, put put uh, an electric motor in there, uh-huh. and then just you know do like ladder racks on top like a uh-huh. tradie would. Uh-huh. And on that space, just put a whole bunch of solar panels. Uh-huh. And how far would I be able to go on solar panels on ladder racks on top of my Ute? But you're going to be then. That's going to be counteracted by the amount of wind interference it's going to create. Sure. Whereas that thing is super S- slick. Slick. It's sleek. It looks nice. Or it's like fast sports as well. Car. It's like sports car styling. It costs two hundred and fifty-five thousand USD. Uh, unfortunately. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah. So there's no return on investment. Yeah. <laughs> 
know. But it will give you an extra 80Ks on your range but no return on investment. Wouldn't you be better off just buy a Tesla for a fraction of that cost and have more range anyway just in your charge? Hey, this is this is the beginning, all right? This yeah, is it's got to start this somewhere. Is, this is the epic sports car that's just going into production. I can imagine, and over time as well, as technology gets better at harvesting and capturing the sun and as they get more innovations on how they can use that power. But the point is, and one of the things that the article about it was pointing out, is that if you drive less than 80 Ks a day, which again... You never need to plug in. You would never While ever the sun is out. That's right. So it's like, okay, yeah, you might... But even just for safety, just for safety, you might plug it in overnight to make that, you know, 300 and an 80 kilometer, kilometer battery full. But it's like, okay, it's nice and full. But let's say you even exceeded that. You went 90 Ks instead of 80 Ks. And it's up to 80 Ks. You could have half a day of sun and get... 40Ks or 60Ks or something. So if you break down on the side of the road, if you run out of fuel on the side of the road with this one, you can sleep in your car and provided the sun comes out tomorrow, you might make it to a charging station. That For sure. But at the same time... like You could also call a tow truck. That's right. You could do that too. But the point is, is that, again, unless you're going on then a massive trip, like if you're exceeding 380 kilometres, then, you know, you've, you've got some other stuff to do there. But... Within that range of the commute, day-to-day, for me, you'd, it'd basically leave you in a position where you'd only charge the car, like, once every couple of weeks, if that. Provided the sun's out. Yeah. Yes. But even if the sun's not out, like, that, like, 300 kilometres, that's that's probably, that's probably, like, I don't know, up to five days' worth of driving for me. Yeah. Yeah. For commuting, this is a fantastic idea. Dude. If you, because like, basically it's like having a reserve tank on, a, on your car for commuting. Yeah. But you never have to fill it up because yeah, it does its right. own thing. Yes. I, I was reading about this. I'm like, D- D- dude, the possibilities is open. And as the technology gets better, like, it, and as you get more Ks out of those solar panels, let's say, you know, after a couple of years, it's 150 Ks from the solar panels a day. Or 100, like, we're talking about a car that you would then pretty much never need to charge. See, I'm surprised they don't have solar panels on the doors because you could park the car sideways to the rising sun, and it would start charging so much earlier in the morning. Well, I think that's going to be the innovation going forward. Is... It's only got solar panels on the roof so far. That's right. The roof and the back window. Yeah, and um, the bonnet. But from going forward, it's like, well, where else can we put these solar panels? And yeah, all, yeah. And, but also developing the technology of how efficient can we use the power generated from the solar panel in the electric engine. Because efficiency in vehicles is something that is like in terms of development is continually developing yes. um, vehicles are becoming more and more and more efficient and we're taking strides and strides and strides. And so as they work out that eventually I feel like there's a point. It will reach the point where I won't be able to put a big sticker on the back window of my car that says it's powered by Hunter Cole. <laughs> proudly powered by Hunter Cole. <laughs> but actually it will get to the point where it's so efficient that it'll be bought by a multinational fuel company <laughs> and, and put out of production. <laughs> and and uh, no one will ever be able to drive one and everyone will be... And in 20 years' time, people will say, oh, no, solar-powered cars are actually unviable. And yeah, we tried that, didn't we? We tried that and it didn't work when there was no money to continue to develop them because... I think you're a conspiracy theorist. I am. I do. I've, I've, mate, I've, my third eye is open. I'm seeing these things clearly <laughs> right now, uh, what's going to take place. Uh, but, yeah, look, I, I look forward to a future in which I'll be able to either use a solar-powered car um, or go to heaven. 
you know, so that would be much better. I'll think, go with the second one. I think the second option. That's 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 where I want to be. You're listening to the Breakfast Show podcast on Faith FM. Positively different. It is the time in which we give the second question for our quiz. Lawson's bring it to you. How far does God remove our transgressions from us? 0491-064-669 is the number to call or text if you know the answer. If you do, you'll go into the draw to win Journal the Word, thou amazing, awesome, superior translated Bible. Uh, New, King, New King James, have been, I've been making that point. I'm like, yes, it's got the superior translation. You're welcome. Uh, we will give it to you absolutely for free. You just have to answer these questions correctly to get in the draw. And that question was, how far does God remove our transgressions from us? 0491-064-669. All right, Lawson, you have been to Greenland? I've never been to Greenland. Would you like to go to Greenland? Uh, potentially. I think to check it out. But whenever I look at it on like Google Maps and it's just this big white map. Why do they call it Greenland when it's white? Yeah. And Why don't they call it Whiteland? And then it's like Greenland and Iceland and they switch names and, you know, the, the debate throughout all the time. Okay, so if you go to the very far northern tip of Greenland, you're pretty much as far north as you can go on land, I think. Yeah. You're right up there in the Arctic. Mm-hmm. And uh, they have been doing some interesting research up there with DNA. Mm. Um, so northern Greenland is a polar desert today. They have found by studying the DNA in the mud. So this is DNA that is attached to particles of clay. Uh-huh. So you dig up a bucket full of clay, you go through that bucket full of clay, and you sift out all the DNA, mm-hmm. and then you can find what used to once live there. Mm-hmm. And they have found, surprise, surprise, that it used to be a very lush landscape, that it was filled with elephants and reindeer and caribou what? and rabbits and all kinds of stuff. That, as today, the only thing that grows there is a few moss and lichens and those kind of things because basically nothing grows there at all. But it used to be populated by... It used to be populated thick forests, all kinds of things. Wow. Okay, so this latest discovery was reported in the journal Nature, uh, and they've been studying landscape DNA. It's the first time they've ever actually studied landscape DNA as such. They've always, you know, found an an organism and studied the DNA from that organism, but this time they've gone, yeah, you know what? Let's just see what traces we can find in the landscape. Uh Uh-huh. And so they, you know, literally dug up buckets of clay and... Sorted through the particles. And here's some elephant DNA. And here's Yes. Some, that is amazing. So, so, so you don't find DNA from a single organism when you do this. You find DNA from an entire ecosystem. Wow. This is called environmental eDNA or DNA or eDNA. Um, and they're claiming it's from the 2.4 million year old Cap Coben Hoven formation. I'm going to question their dates on that, but nevertheless... Um, they say that the ecosystem that they recovered has no present-day analogues. So you have about 12, 12 different environments that mm-hmm. exist in our world today, and you've got deserts, you've got tropical rainforest, you've got temperate you know, rainforest, you've got all these different kinds of environments, and they have discovered that there is nothing, no environment that exists today that in any way remotely reflects the environment that they discovered. Mm. Surprise, surprise. Mm. Maybe they should read the Bible. <laughs> They would find out the answers to this. They would be much less surprised. They would be discovering exactly what they expected to find if they read their Bible. Mm. Uh, Today, this area has no rainfall and supports only moss and lichen. 
It's a grey-coloured landscape that in the past would have been a forest surrounding a large river carrying sediment into an ocean bay. And they found that in the bay's waters uh, it contained coral. Mm-hmm. Wow. Coral, horseshoe crabs, algae, and a multitude of other microorganisms. They don't even know what they are yet, but they have discovered their DNA. They may be macroorganisms. Who knows? Um, on land, there was conifers, there was deciduous plants, there was flowering trees, there was shrubs, there was herbs. Uh, of course, none of them exist today, mm. and they have no fossil record of any of these plants. So what they're, what they're discovering uh-huh. is all kinds of plants through their DNA that there's no fossil record of today. They uh-huh. have never dug one up and gone, oh, here's a fossil and let's call it this name. Uh-huh. There's no record of these things. These are they're fresh, incredibly rich, with so many discoveries, and it makes you know they're starting to ask the question. You know, what if we what if we did this in Australia? What if we went to the centre of Australia? What would we find there? Yeah, because wow. we thought we knew about all kinds of different animals and critters that existed, you know, in the past uh-huh. before the flood. You and I would say, mm. and now they're discovering that well, there was an ecosystem back there that we haven't even begun. We to don't even scratch the surface wow. of it. Which sort of, you know, brings to mind, you know, when the Bible says, eye has not seen, ear has not heard, neither has entered into the heart of man, the things that God has prepared for us in the new earth, mm. which will be like the old earth. Yeah. And this is one of those tiny windows. You dig up some mud and you get a tiny window and suddenly go, wait a minute. We have no idea what the old earth used mm. to actually look like. They said that the presence of reindeer, so early in the DNA, Shocked them because oh, they didn't believe wow. that reindeer had evolved by this particular point. <laughs> and suddenly they found reindeer going back, what do they say here, 2.4 million years. And like, wait a minute, how is that even possible? Um, reindeer can't possibly be that old. Well, apparently they were around when these other things were around, which mm-hmm. once again, if they read the Bibles, they wouldn't be surprised by that. Absolutely. They would expect that. Um, they say people believe that reindeers originated way, way later in history, but apparently they are much older as a species compared. Yeah, you know, I just love. Uh, uh, that's classic. I just love science. That's classic. I just love science because every time people discover something in science, it just confirms the Bible story. Yeah, and then the, the response to it is like, "Wow, this thing We're that shocked. must have been very recent is actually very must be very old because it that's the only way it fits into the model that we've created to make sense of it." They said that well, there would have been carnivores too, but they didn't show up in the DNA sequences. Um, so they haven't found any carnivores oh, up there. Wow. So it's a cool story. It's just, you know, I love these kind of stories. They do come up on a fairly regular basis, and it's good to be able to share them with you. Isn't that interesting, actually, that in that area in which used to be like great fauna and flora and whatnot, uh, they haven't found any carnivores up there? Being an area that has been isolated and has had no life on it for such a long time, which again confirms what the Bible says, because, know, because animals of, weren't originally carnivores. Kind of confirms that, doesn't mm. it? Anyway, let's go over, head over to the Ukraine now. And this one's a challenging one because the Ukraine is considering banning uh, Russian-affiliated churches within its borders, Oof. which is, you know, you get a war and terrible things happen and religious liberty comes under threat. You wonder whether once those religious liberties are gone, whether they will ever come back again. But at the mm-hmm. same time, it's a warning to us when it comes to these kind of conflicts that if we make our churches political in nature – 
rather than focusing on specific issues, then we can run this threat. Mm. The problem is that many of the issues that we stand for as Christians, like, for instance, traditional family values, mm-hmm. are now political issues. Mm. And so you've got, on one side, you've got Vladimir Putin, who stands for tra- traditional family values, and you've got Zelensky, who is about as woke as they come. He comes from you know a, an acting career, a Hollywood mm. kind of background, and so that's a very, very woke background, who doesn't stand for tra- traditional family values. And so if you are preaching traditional family values, then suddenly that makes you sound pro-Russian. Oh, wow. And so that suddenly you suddenly become a deep state, you know, a, a, a Russian infiltrators within the church, and so the church needs to be closed down. And so this is a this is a story where it's like, where, where, if you're a Christian right now, where do you go with this? What do you actually do? How do you approach this? Mm. Uh, because you know, if you stand up against, say, for instance, same-sex marriage, that's going to be seen as pro-Russian propaganda. Mm. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm not. I'm not defending Vladimir Putin. I'm not a Putin uh, uh, apologist here by any stretch of the imagination. I think it's absolutely horrific what he's doing in Ukraine. Yeah, absolutely. But you can see how churches can easily get themselves into trouble right here. Mm. Uh, the Ukrainian president Vladimir Zelensky argued that pro-Russian influences are trying to weaken Ukraine from within. Mm. As the war rages on, uh, we have to create conditions where no actors dependent on the aggressor state will have an opportunity to manipulate Ukrainians and weaken Ukraine from within. We will never allow anyone to build an empire inside the Ukrainian soul. Oof. Which is all fair enough. You don't want somebody standing up and presenting propaganda for the other side that is unpatriotic. But at the same time, if the other side has taken a biblical stand on a certain issue, where do you go with this one? Yeah, how is it propaganda? That's that's, mm. that's the difficult thing. Yeah, the difficult thing. The Metropolitan Clement, a spokesperson for the church, says his organisation has always acted within the framework of Ukrainian law. Um, yeah, interesting stuff. You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM, positively different. Our next question for the quiz. What animal pants after the water brooks? This is actually a very famous hymn. Uh, if you know the answer, if you, you know, if you ever sung this one before, 0491-064-669 is the number to call or text. What animal pants after the water brooks? 0491-064-669. That is the number to call or text with the answer. Well, joining us on the phone this morning is one of my favourite segments of this particular uh, breakfast show, and that is Eliza Southwell, uh, who is our resident historian. Eliza, welcome to the show. It's great to be on. That's high praise indeed. Thank you, Lyle. <laughs> Now, Eliza, we're talking about a time period we would call the Dark Ages, and, and most people just assume that, well, Christianity in the Dark Ages was in Western Europe and it was the Roman Catholic Church. But for those who have studied a little bit of history, we know that that is very, very far from the truth, and so we're looking at some of those places where Christianity was very strong but less well-known. Whereabouts are we going today? That's right. Today we're going to Syria. So Protestants tend to say that, you know, we're going back to the Bible Catholics counter that by saying, well, you know, you're ignoring Christian tradition. But actually, Protestants do have this link with the past, with apostolic Christianity, with biblical Christianity. And that's not found through a connection with the Roman Catholic Church, but it is with many churches throughout the world, including the church in Syria. And so 
last time we called these churches the church in the wilderness. Yes. That's the biblical term for them. But the church in Syria, we first hear about this church on Paul's first missionary journey when he goes to Antioch with Barnabas around 45 AD. But with the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD, many Jews around outside Palestine turned to Christianity. This was obviously one of the great prophecies of Jesus, that the temple would fall, Jerusalem would fall, and of course the Christians had advanced warning of this, so they got out in time. All the Jews around Palestine realized, oh wow, Jesus was the real thing. They turned to Christianity and they established the church all over the known world. So the Christian Jews who fled Jerusalem to Decapolis over in Transjordan were probably numbered around seventy to 90,000 people. And it's from there, many of them, yeah, many of them moved to Syria. And so there were cities. Syria was really an enormous center of cultural heritage and of learning. And it was also a very, it was the richest province in the Roman Empire. Yet we, we go to Syria today and there are ancient cities that are, that are abandoned. We see in their stoneworks. And in their inscriptions, inscriptions of dedicating buildings to Christ, dedicating churches. But these cities were abandoned when heresy was outlawed throughout the Roman Empire by the church in Rome. And these Christians fled because Rome had defined their belief as heresy, so they fled to uh, the Persian Empire. Right, so is, when Rome um, defines their, their beliefs as heresy, if I could just jump in here for a moment, uh, was mm-hmm. this because... They were sticking by the Bible rather than by the traditions that Rome, you know, was, I, I guess, instigating and creating. Because, you know, particularly when you come down to that fifth century era, you have a tremendous amount of paganism that just floods into the Catholic Church and mm-hmm. um, and dilutes Christianity to the point of impotence. Almost, you know, you could barely even recognize it in many mm-hmm. respects. And is this where you start to get this, I guess, schism between the East and the West, where the West is saying, well, we need Mm -hmm. to be embracing paganism to win pagans, and the East is saying, no, we need to embrace the Bible to win paganism. Is that that what's taking place here? Essentially, yes. Um, So, of course, when you put it like that, that sounds terrible. (laughs) You know, why would they ever agree with that? Um, But actually, it was was much more an issue of creeping compromise. So what happened to pushed Syria out of the Roman fold, if you like, between 45 AD and when heresy was banned in 380 AD. Well, one figure stands out particularly. His name was Lucian. He was a great theologian. He was an elder of the church in Antioch. Um, Imagine C.S. Lewis, but with authority, if you like. Um, He... um, some of our listeners might have heard of the Textus Receptus, um, which was a uh, translation of the New Testament into Greek that was verified uh, by Lucian amid a myriad of cherry pickers in his time. Um, so he um, made sure that there weren't any apocryphal books in the New Testament. He translated the Old Testament into Greek. He used, um, and that, that, text that he um, curated and, and translated was used, is used um, to translate the Luther Bible, the Tyndale Bible, and the King James. So Lucian is, 
um, a really key figure in the church in Syria. But he um, played a part in a developing rift in the church between uh, the church in Antioch and the church in Alexandria and Rome. Alexandria and Rome kind of argued that, you know, we can interpret the Bible allegorically, metaphorically, um, and they did that because they had so many pagans there, and they thought, well, how can we reach the pagans? Well, if we're not quite so hardline, if we're not quite so fundamentalist, um, then maybe we can be a bit more attractive to them. So um, Clement, for example, who was from Alexandria, uh, taught that um, Rome was supreme. There was no salvation outside the church. He taught that Christianity was compatible with paganism and that sun worship was really like worshiping the son of righteousness, which is, of course, one of Jesus' names in the Bible. Um, so he was very loose with Scripture. And Lucian had a problem with that, <laughs> um, as, as our listeners might imagine. Um, and Lucian denounced in very strong terms um, that kind of playing loose and fast with the Word of God. He took a very high view of Scripture and thought, well, let's let the Bible stand for itself. Um, and our, um, our standards for faith and practice should come from the Bible. He was particularly resistant against a developing habit of looking to traditions of the church as basically equal to the Bible itself. Um, this, this was a, a popular, I suppose, um, popular habit in the same way that today we might you know, have our favorite preacher. And if you start quoting your favorite preacher more than you quote the Bible, you know, beware, you're doing the same thing that, that Rome did in the beginning. Um, interestingly, um, there's very strong evidence throughout the Eastern Roman Empire, um, even in, in Constantinople itself, in modern-day Istanbul, um, that even up into the 5th century, um, Christians widely kept the Sabbath as, as the day of worship. Um, but these Sabbatarians were accused of being Judaizers by Rome. So there's this increasing tension as well on, on the front of what's involved in the Ten Commandments. Have they been changed? Does anyone but God have the authority to change them? Um, and so that, that also plays, played a role in these increasing tensions with the church in Syria. It's fascinating information. You know, when we talk about Syria, we don't think of Syria as being a... Uh, you know, a, a, a birthplace in many ways of Christianity, but the reality is we could say, well, Christianity drew out, it grew out of Jerusalem, but it, it did not spend much time with its headquarters in Jerusalem. It Very quickly the, um, the balance moved to Syria, and mm. Christianity really in the ancient world grew, grew out of Syria, grew out of Antioch even, uh, became a great missionary mm. centre. Um, something right. that we, we are, you know, right. and I guess one of the other things that's, that's fascinating is that even down to today, People don't realize there's three quarters of a million Christians in Syria. And we think of it mm. as an Islamic country, but 
that that would not be an accurate depiction of what Syria is. Right, right. We we tend to think of Syria as an Islamic country because, of course, when the Islamic Empire was first founded by Muhammad and his his predecessors, um, sorry, his his successors, um, it expanded very rapidly and conquered Byzantine Syria in the seventh century. Um, many of the Christians that had remained sought refuge further east in Mesopotamia, in Persia, even further east, um, as we'll, we'll discuss more um, later on in the year. Um, but, but yes, they, they fled the, um, the rise of Islam because, of course, under Islam, they, they weren't, they were second-class citizens. And um, there was the dinner tax that they were required to pay um, as as Christians, and the the um, the situation they found themselves in was almost similar to a reversion back to um, the the kind of atmosphere that existed at the time of the apostles with persecution from Rome. Mm. And so, you know, so they kind of replaced, kind of replaced persecution from Rome with persecution from Islam. That's right. And they had a short period in between of thriving mission work where they had a free reign to do the work as it should be done. Um, it is, it's interesting when you look at the history of Christianity in Syria and how, you know, the impact of Islam... And also the rise of Islam, because you know, one of, I guess one of the questions that's, and this might, this is this is definitely going off topic, but one of the questions that's gone through <laughs> my head for some time is how was Islam able to rise so rapidly, so hard, so fast, and you know, and, mm. and grow so um, exponentially in such a short space of time? But when you look at the climate of the world back then, you've got this this movement that is you know, away from the Bible in the West and is heading towards idolatry in many ways. Um, mm-hmm. you know, where you had, you know, the veneration of saints and images and all of these things that were, you know, uh, parts of paganism that came flooding into the Western church. You've got resistance to that in the East amongst Eastern Christianity. You've got Islam that comes along that absolutely abhors anything to do with idolatry and, and sort of goes as far from mm-hmm. any form of idolatry as it possibly can. And you can suddenly see how it becomes attractive to people who are looking for an alternative from the religion in Rome. Well, in many places that the Islamic Empire expanded into, Christians weren't converted immediately by any stretch of the imagination. In Spain, it took a few hundred years after the majority of Christians to um, to convert to Islam. I don't think um, I, I don't think Islam expanded primarily because of um, you know, a groundswell of popular support. Um, we forget that the Roman Empire was very fragile. And in the West, it crumbled very quickly. In Constantinople, it still had some integrity, but um, the Roman Empire suffered from overreach. And it, it just wasn't possible to maintain such a large empire over such rich countries um, for so long. And you know, Islam didn't rise until the 600s. And there was a lot of water to go under the bridge between 
um, between the, the disintegration of the Roman Empire and then I think it was relatively easy, actually, with a, um, well, if you like, a, a strongly ideological military force that had seen great success in Arabia to proceed on to Egypt and uh, through the rest of the Middle East because they felt strongly that um, this was a work that you know, God had put before them. And when you think that God is with you, that is a huge motivating force. Yes, so I, I think the rise of Islam is, is due to other forces. But, um, is, uh, morale is is worth three times what uh, technology is in in in, in battle. Um, right. Eliza, we, we've right. um, it's been an interesting conversation talking about the uh, the history of Christianity in Syria and particularly how it spread from there to Persia and then further east, um, across, of course, crossing mm-hmm. India and China, um, up into Mongolia and other places. And I'm assuming that uh, in the future we're going to actually trace the history of Christianity as it moves across into these areas. Unfortunately, we're mm-hmm. out of time. Yeah. But um, we look forward to next month's instalment where we dig into another portion of the history of the church in the wilderness. Thank you so much for joining us here on Faith FM. Thanks for being a part of the Faith FM family. Join our community on Facebook or get in touch at 1-800-FAITH-FM.